again this Sunday morning, this Lord's Day morning. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. To Luke chapter 10, and while you're finding your place, let me say a few words of introduction. There are a few passages in all of Scripture that are more familiar within our culture than the one that we come to today. Everybody knows what it means, at least when the culture says it, to call somebody a good Samaritan, just like we all know what it means to call someone a prodigal son. We name ships, hospitals, even laws after this text. We pass good Samaritan laws in order to protect someone from liability when he intervenes in a reasonable way to help strangers. The ship that brought my ancestors here from Norway via England was named after the Good Samaritan. And we even have hospitals and ministries named in the same way. We recognize that this passage shows us a picture of love whereby a person is willing to intervene to help a stranger in need regardless of whether or not he has an existing relationship with that person. It's very familiar to us in our cultural context. And yet this morning as we come to this text in Luke chapter 10, I want you to see that this parable also exists within a narrative context that will put it in a different light, in a different perspective. That as we come to this text in Luke chapter 10, the way it's framed in the narrative, we're going to see that it doesn't merely teach us to do random acts of kindness or to help strangers, whether we know them or not. But rather, it shows us what it means to truly fulfill the law of God, while also calling us to seek the righteousness that does not come through the law, but comes through faith in Christ alone. To put it another way, while it does not tell us to stop trying to love God with all our being, and it encourages us to continue seeking to love, God, love our neighbor as ourselves. It tells us and teaches us to stop trying to justify ourselves by our law-keeping. And instead encourages us to trust in the only one who is able to make us righteous. That's what we're going to see from this text. And so if you found your place in Luke chapter 10, would you follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 25. And I will read to the end of the chapter. And behold... A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii 
and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning recognizing that we all fail to be keepers of the law. We all stand in need of the righteousness that we cannot provide, the righteousness that you only can provide us through faith in the one who was perfectly righteous for our sake, who gave his life for us. Lord, we pray as we come to this text that we would not merely see it as a lesson of morality, though we, we pray that we would see it as a lesson that rightly trains our virtue, develops our ethical sensibilities, but that more than this, we would see it as a proclamation of this gospel of Jesus Christ, this gospel of the kingdom that calls us into the kingdom, that calls us to receive eternal life, not through anything that we can provide by our own merits, but through faith in Him and Him alone. So, Lord, we pray that you would write these truths upon our heart and impress them in our minds so that we might go forth from this place as hearers and doers of your word who trust you fully as we trust in your Son and so seek to be like him by your grace and your power in our lives. This we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I said to you this morning that it's important that we see this parable within its narrative context. Jesus did not simply sit down one day and decide that it was a good idea to tell a story about a good Samaritan. Rather, there was a situation that prompted him to tell this particular parable. And we need to observe that particular context. It will also be necessary to observe what Luke presents to us after the telling of this parable. For the two things go together. But first, we'll begin with the opening narrative. And here what we see is that a man stands up, a lawyer, as it is, stands up and puts Jesus to the test. We see, in other words, a lawyer testing the teacher. Now, when we think of a lawyer in our own context, we think of a prosecuting attorney or a defense attorney, someone that might help you or seek to, uh, uh, to uh, incriminate you in the, in the pursuit of justice in a court of law. But in this context in ancient Israel, a lawyer was not quite that type of person, but rather someone who was studied in the law of God, someone who knew God's word thoroughly and completely and was able to instruct the people in what it was that God required. This man was a lawyer, or we might call him a scribe. They were one and the same group. And he would have been studied in God's law. And so as he stood up to test the teacher, to challenge Jesus, this upstart teacher from Nazareth, and to ask him this difficult question. He wasn't asking because he didn't think he knew the answer. 
He wasn't asking because he wanted to be taught, as Luke tells us plainly. He asked him this question in order to test him, to see if he really understood the law, to see if he was really a teacher who ought to be followed. But Jesus turns the test around. He doesn't simply answer this man's question, but instead he turns it around after the man asks what he must do to inherit eternal life. He says, what does the law say? In other words, this man wants to know how he can come into eternal life. That is, he wants to know how Jesus would answer that question. And Jesus asks this man, what does the law teach you? How is it that you might inherit eternal life through the law? And this man, of course, turns to the two great commandments in the law. We read one this morning together corporately from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. I'll read those words again for you. It reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. This man rightly understood that this first great commandment taught that the most important thing, the foundational truth upon which the whole of God's law rests, is that God is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our complete devotion. He is worthy of all of our affection. Not just platitudes, not just a stated love, but worthy of that kind of love that flows forth from our whole being, that we owe God our love, love that flows from our mind, that flows from our heart, that flows from all of our self, from our soul, and all of our strength, with everything that is within us, We are called to love the Lord our God just as He commanded the people of Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6. But there is also a second great commandment. A second great commandment, and the lawyer knows it. He recognizes it, that we are to also love our neighbors. To love your neighbor as yourself is the second great commandment. Now this commandment is found in Leviticus 19 verse 18. But it's not as if it's buried somewhere in some obscure person of the, per, passage of the law. But rather, as you read through that whole text, Moses in the law lays out all of these ways in which the Israelites, when they came into the land, were to treat those brothers in Israel, those neighbors that they had, and also people who came from other countries who they would call sojourners, ways in which they were treat them, to treat them, and also ways in which they were to refrain from mistreating them. And the central idea, the foundational truth that undergirded all of it was that they were to love their neighbor as their self. You find that in Leviticus 19, verse 18. This man is correct, as Jesus affirms. And if you'll turn over with me for a moment to, Luke, to Mark chapter 12, we'll see there that Jesus himself taught in the very same way. In Mark chapter 12, verse 28, when Jesus came into Jerusalem The final week before he went to the cross, he was put to the test by a scribe, by another lawyer. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. 
So we see that Jesus himself taught the very same thing that this scribe here affirms. He affirmed rightly that the whole law rests upon this twofold foundation of love for God and love for neighbor. As we read in Mark, as it goes on, we find in verse 32, the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That scribe understood truly as well, and he went further to express the consequence of what Jesus there affirmed. That is, if this is true, that these are the most important commandments, and the whole law rests upon this foundation, then all of the other things that we see in the first five books of the Bible, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the offerings, all of the things that God commanded His people to do, all of them, in their whole aggregate, together, are not as great as these two great commandments. These are the greatest. Now Jesus turns to that scribe in that context. In verse 34 we read, And when Jesus saw that He answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask Him any more questions. As we come back to Luke chapter 10 then, we see a very similar concern, but the shoe is on the other foot. It's Jesus who is putting that scribe to the test and making him answer that question. And it's this particular scribe who is affirming the truth. And then it's Jesus who says to him in verse 28, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And I want you to understand that this idea of inheriting eternal life is synonymous in a sense with the idea of entering, gaining entrance to the kingdom of God. It's not that they mean exactly the same thing, but they refer to that, this same broad idea, that if one enters the kingdom of God, it's the same as he, him entering into eternal life in some sense. And we can see that in texts like John 3, when Jesus spoke with Nicodemus and seems to use that same language interchangeably of seeing the kingdom of God and of inheriting eternal life. We can see it in Luke as well, in Luke 18, in a passage that we will come to. Luke 18, verses 18 through 30, where a rich young ruler will come to Jesus seeking to know what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus will speak about this thing using this idea of inheriting eternal life interchangeably with entering into the kingdom of God. It's the one and the same idea. And it brings these passages together. But when we recall and mark what Jesus said in that interaction with the scribe, when it was all said and done, he did not say, you will see eternal life. He did not say on the basis of his right understanding that you will live. He said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. His understanding showed that he had a heart that was ready to receive God's word and to believe, and yet it implied there is still some distance. He was not quite there. Is there a contradiction then? Here when Jesus says, do this and you will live? No, there's not a contradiction. Because what Jesus is going to show the man in the broader context is that though he tells him that if you were to do all of these things, these fulfill these two great commandments perfectly in accordance with the law, indeed, you would find eternal life. What we're going to see is that no one can fully fulfill those two commandments. None of us is so righteous that we can claim that our record is so perfect 
that we have never failed to love God with all our being, never failed even to love our neighbor as ourself. But this man does not yet see it. And Jesus is going to drive him to a place where he might be able to see it. There is a greater distance for him from that kingdom, from eternal life, than there was for that scribe in Mark chapter 12. This scribe has a different problem, a greater problem, because in his life, he is blinded by his own self-righteousness. Now, it's important to understand this principle before we look at what he asks next. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul taught the Galatians concerning the righteousness that comes by way of the law, and he compared it with the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. In Galatians 3, verse 10 and following, we read these words, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. If you're relying on your good works to gain entrance into the kingdom of God, to find eternal life, then you are under a curse, Paul writes. And he goes on and he says, For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That one must abide by and do not most of the things written in the law. Not with a pretty good record, nearly all things written in the law. But all things that are written in the book of the law, one must fulfill in order to, to be acquitted before God, in order to gain that righteousness that comes by the work of the law. And no one can do this. Paul will go on to say this in this text. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. He's quoting from different passages in the Old Testament. In this case, from the book of Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. And he goes on, but the laws not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Quoting from Leviticus 18.5. If you want to have life by the law, then you can live by the law if you do all things in the law. But you need to stop and reflect Have you really fulfilled these two great commandments? And if you're honest with yourself, you'll come to an opinion that is very much like the one which Solomon himself professed when he prayed a great prayer at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8, verse 46, looking forward in time and praying that in a day when the people of Israel would rebel against God, that he might forgive them when they repent. He said, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so they are carried away captive. And he goes on to pray, the Lord might relent from that judgment when they turn to him and repent. But we see that this man does not recognize that same thing, for there is no one who does not sin. He seems to think that somehow he's excluded. What he doesn't realize is in order to feel that sense of righteousness, that self-righteousness, he must draw a boundary around these laws that he has just laid down that limits them further than they are limited by God's law. Verse 29, he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus has fired a shot across his bow, telling him, do this and you will live. This man is asked, how can he find eternal life? How can he inherit it? 
But rather than responding to that like Solomon and saying, but how can anyone find eternal life in this way? He seeks to limit that law and say, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus is going to respond with a parable that will teach him that not just who his neighbor is, but the very question he's asking is the wrong question. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. On this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, we find an unnamed man, a man we know very little about. He's simply on a journey. But we are struck by the fact that Jesus names the places, names Jerusalem, and names Jericho in the context of this parable, because he does not normally do that in his parables. His parables are usually set in a general place, but here he's very specific, and we think then in terms of uh, a person traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, some 17 miles, there's not very much along the way, little towns of Bethany and Bethpage, but most of the journey is through winding, rocky, mountainous terrains, a place that was good for robbers place that was good for thieves, and it was common in that day that to travel along such a path was a perilous task. You risked your life in your hands. Normally people wouldn't do it alone. But here we see this man traveling along this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. We don't know why he's leaving Jerusalem. We don't know why he's on his way to Jer Jericho. We can suggest some reasons, and we'll come to that in due course. But we see that he is beaten, he is stripped, and he is left half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And then the same thing with a Levite. Now the Levites were the tribe within Israel who were tasked with all of the various religious services that God commanded his people to perform within the law. And within the Levites, the priests were a subset of that tribe descendants from Aaron, the brother of Moses. And they were tasked specifically with the service in the temple, the offering of sacrifices and the various offerings that were brought before the Lord. We saw a picture of a faithful priest at the very beginning of Luke's gospel in Zechariah. And there we recall that the priests, it was their custom, they were divided into divisions. And their divisions would go up to Jerusalem twice a year to offer service at the temple. And so probably we look at this priest and we say he is returning from Jerusalem because he has finished his week of regular service. Now he's going back to his hometown. We don't know why the Levite is on the same road, but we, must, we, we might suggest that he probably was in Jerusalem for some religious reason as well. Now if this man, this scribe, is listening to Jesus and he's to identify with anyone in this parable, it's going to be these two men. But he can't know that yet until Jesus reveals the third person in the parable. Because these two men, the priest and the Levite, would have been knowers of the law. They would have known the law as thoroughly as the scribe. In some sense, with regard to the sacrifices and offerings, they would have been doers of the law. But in terms of these two great commandments, particularly the second great commandment, which is put before us today, they were not doers of the law. For when they both saw the man beaten and left for dead, they passed by on the other side. They might have come up with excuses like, we thought he was dead and we knew that it would make us unclean to touch a dead man. But it's a rather hollow excuse for the priest who's going away from Jerusalem. His time of service has ended. He can be ritually cleansed again if he touches this man and he happens to be dead. 
It's not like it will prevent him from doing the service he has just completed. Well, in the narrative, they don't make those excuses. But the people, the original audience that's listening to Jesus tell this story, they would have readily made those connections. Maybe the, the, the scribe listening to it might have thought, I might have done the very same thing. As I walked down that road, I would have crossed to the other side, I would have turned my eye, would have pretended like I didn't see what had happened. Now we come to the turn in the narrative. And if we're a part of the original audience, if we're the scribe or those who are with him, we might be expecting, well, now he's going to introduce, he's going to introduce a, perhaps a Pharisee or perhaps a scribe or perhaps someone who's truly a religious person doing the law, but he doesn't at all. He introduces a Samaritan. And you know how Jews felt about Samaritans and how Samaritans felt about Jews. We only need to turn back one page, turn over one page, back to Luke chapter 9 in our Bibles to remind ourselves about the tension that existed between Jews and Samaritans. In Luke 9, verse 51, we read, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Remember that Jesus is on a journey. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going there to suffer and to die and to rise. But because it was very clear that that's where he was going, the Samaritans wanted nothing to do with him. They wouldn't receive him. That was not a place that they went. And yet here on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, Samaria is not in between. We find a Samaritan. We might wonder, what was he doing in Jerusalem? Is perhaps this man a faithful follower of the Lord? Is perhaps this man a man who is truly devout before the Lord? You see, the Samaritans were people who were descended from Jacob. They were descended from the people of Israel. But you can see this in 2 Kings, in the book of 2 Kings. There, after the fall of Israel in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 24 to 41, you can see what happened to the people who lived in this land. After Assyria conquered the northern tribes of Israel, they resettled many others in that land. And the people who came into that land intermarried with the people who were in the land. And they introduced their own religious practices. And as they introduced these religious practices, the people mingled the proper worship of God with idolatrous and false worship. And as they did these things, they sought to essentially have their foot in both worlds, to live both ways, as it were. And they did that right up until the day when that book of Kings was written. This is the people of Samaria. This is what they were like. You can see that even in John chapter 4. They had debates with the Jews about what was the proper way to worship the Lord. And so, for instance, the woman at the well, when she met Jesus, she asked him that difficult question about the law and about the proper place of worship. Our fathers worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, but you people say that the proper place to worship is in Jerusalem. And which is it? This is the kind of tension that we would expect between Jews and Samaritans. And Jews would have hated Samaritans. And the last thing that they would have said was that a Samaritan is my neighbor. They would not have said that. But here we see that this Samaritan... When he saw the man, unlike the priest and the Levite who saw him and passed to the other side, 
He saw him and he had compassion. We ask ourselves, when we read the Gospels, who is it who has compassion on people? Who do we see having compassion on his people? It is God. And most often it is Christ himself. Having compassion on people. Like we saw in Luke 7.13, when he came into the town and saw the widow who had an only son who had died and that funeral that was taking place. And he had compassion on her. He felt deeply within his spirit. And here the Samaritan, very much like Jesus, feels deeply within himself for this man. And that love flows forth in action. He goes and he binds up his wounds. He pours on oil and wine. And then he sets him on his own animal. Brings him to an inn. Takes care of him. And the next day, he takes out two denarii. He takes out essentially two days' wages. And he pays a down payment for the care of this man. And he promises that when he returns, when he comes back, he will pay whatever is owed. What we see in this Samaritan is a man whose love caused him to care in great ways for this stranger, to take that care at great personal cost, two denarii, oil and wine, and even a personal commitment to pay whatever was necessary for the healing of that man. A great personal cost, and a great personal commitment so that this man might be restored whole. The question then, that Jesus poses to this scribe who is asked, who is my neighbor? As he reframes the whole question, is who do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man again answered rightly, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, you go and do likewise. You see, when you hear that command, love your neighbor as yourself, you hear three elements in that command. The first is love, and we demonstrate love in actions that are merciful to people who don't deserve it. That's what love is. It's not just a feeling, an emotional sentiment. It's not simply random acts of kindness that are reasonable in nature. It's compassionate giving. It's sacrificial giving that flows from a deep movement of our spirit to see somebody helped. That's what love looks like in this context when it's neighborly love. And this man demonstrated it. We ask then the second element of that command, your neighbor, who is my neighbor? And we're reminded what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 43, when he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But then he goes on to tell them, but I say to you, pray for those who persecute you. Pray for your persecutors. Love your enemies. We remember that from Luke chapter 6 as well in the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus redefines our categories, showing us that to be, for someone to be our neighbor means that we are a neighbor ourselves. It's a two-way street, not a one-way street. So that final element of the command comes in to establish the limit. How much do you love your neighbor? You love your neighbor as yourself. And you simply put yourself in the context of this man on the road who was beaten and left for dead. If that was you, what would you want passing strangers to do? To walk by on the other side or to help you? If that's how you would love yourself, then that's how you are to love your neighbor. Jesus is shattering their expectations and their assumptions. 
And he's not, going, he's not done yet. Because what he's going to ultimately show in the course of this gospel is that true love, true love for neighbor, is finally fulfilled when we see it in him on the cross. We are not his neighbors in any sense of the definition. He is God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. We are his creatures. And yet he loved us with such an everlasting love that he came in our likeness and he gave his life for us so that through faith in him we might have eternal life. That is how much the Son of God loved you. He calls us to love our neighbors like that. If God so loved us, brothers and sisters in Christ, then let us also love one another in this way. That is what it truly looks like to fulfill the law of God. It's love that has no end, for God's love for us had no end. And that's what he calls this man to do. But he also should have gone away recognizing he has already fallen far short of this standard. The second great commandment he has failed to fulfill. How much more the first great commandment. For he has put the Lord his God to the test. He doesn't recognize him as the Lord his God. He's put him to the test. He has not loved him as he should. So as he goes with this command, with these instructions from the Lord, he ought also to go and abandon his hope of justifying himself by limiting the law in some way so that he can actually say, well, I fulfill it. But rather recognizing what God's law actually commands and seeing how far he falls short and then looking to the one who taught him these things, he should say, how can I have eternal life when I have failed in so many ways? That's what we all must ask as we think about this parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's not just for legalistic scribes and Pharisees. It's not just for people who are outside of the church. But it's for people who are already Christ's disciples. That's what we see in the passage that follows, which functions something like an epilogue to this narrative. You see, as Jesus goes away from there, and he enters a village, he comes to the home of Martha, and she welcomes him into her house. And her sister Mary is there. We see that Martha is frustrated because Mary takes a seat at Jesus' feet. And just as much as that Samaritan helping this man in the parable would have been shocking, this would have been shocking in that culture. It was not expected that women sat in that kind of place that is at the feet of a teacher like a disciple. They ought to be in the background serving in that culture, in that context. That was what would have been expected of them. Martha would have been doing the right thing by every cultural assumption. And so she's frustrated because she's serving and she's working and her sister has left her to labor alone. She says to the Lord, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Remember how the parable began. The man asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And two great commandments were set before us. But the parable dealt with the second great commandment, with love for neighbor. Here we come to the issue of the first great commandment. Love for God that is true and right. Love for God that is with our whole heart, our whole soul, all of our strength, and all of our being. And that love, because God has sent His Son and fully 
and finally revealed himself to us in the sending of his Son. That love is demonstrated now through faith in the Son of God. And Mary is expressing that faith. Jesus teaches Martha that very thing. She's anxious and she's troubled about many things. She is distracted by much service. And we think, isn't the, isn't the parable teaching us to be servants, to be helping others? Yes, but there is a first great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your might, and with all your strength. With everything that is in you, you shall love the Lord your God. And here, the Lord, she dresses him as Lord. The Lord stands before them, stands before Martha. And Jesus says to her, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Many things that keep her from loving God as she ought. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. You remember at the end of chapter 9, how Jesus could say to a man, follow me. And when the man said, let me bury my father, or another said, let me bid farewell to my family, those struck us as very reasonable requests. And yet, because it was Jesus Christ who was calling them to follow him, it was fully right and reasonable for him to say, leave the dead to bury their dead. Don't turn your back to me. Don't put your hand to the plow and then turn back. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You come and follow me. And so too here, in that context, Martha's request under any other situation would have been fully reasonable, very reasonable. But in this context where Jesus Christ is in their midst teaching them, she has chosen the better portion. And that's what, Mary, that's what Martha needs to learn, to put away all of those things that trouble her and make her anxious, to express her love for God through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, what I'm showing you, seeking to show you this morning, is that as we think about fulfilling the law of God, we can use the language that we find in John's first epistle. In this new covenant context in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, John restates these same two principles in this way. And those of you who have been with us in the evenings as we went through John's epistles will remember these words. In 1 John 3, verse 23, John wrote this. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. It's the same as what we see in the law, to love God with all your being, to love your neighbor as yourself. We express that in this new context through faith in Jesus Christ and by loving one another. And it doesn't mean that we don't love those who are outside of the church, those who are outside of our congregation. We'll see that tonight in 1 Thessalonians 5 if you return to hear the word preached. But it means that we show a special love to one another in this context in which Christ has called us through faith in Him. We also need to understand quite clearly that as we seek to fulfill the law, we're not doing this so that we might be counted as righteous before God because we are keepers of the law. Faith is not a work that earns us salvation. Love for one another is not a work that earns us salvation. It can never counterbalance our sin against Almighty God. It can never be enough to overcome the extent of our sin. God is holy. We are not. 
And of our own righteousness, we can never enter into His presence. That is clear through and through all of Scripture. It doesn't mean we don't seek to still fulfill the law. It doesn't mean that we still don't commit ourselves to faith in Christ and to love one another. But as we reflect upon the relationship between the law and the gospel, we must recognize the difference between root and fruit. Love for God and love for neighbor is not like the snow on a mountaintop that feeds the stream. It is like the lake that is fed by the river. Those things flow forth from, from faith. They are the fruit of faith, not the root of our salvation. When God graciously intervenes in our life to bring us through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to a true faith in Jesus Christ, the natural consequence, the consequence that God produces in the life of His people is characterized by true love. Love for God and love for neighbor. And those things don't earn us salvation. They are the consequence of the salvation that God has worked in our lives. But that doesn't mean we don't stop trying to pursue those things. Sometimes we think about obedience to the law and we say, well, because of the gospel, because I'm forgiven, I don't have to worry about those things. I can put those things aside. And here we're chastised. There really is a kind of life that God has called us to, one that is marked by love in these two directions, a vertical love and a horizontal love. But if we go about in this self-justifying way, like the scribe and like Martha, thinking that what we need to be doing, what's most important, is what we ourselves are doing in this life, the service that we ourselves are rendering, the love that we ourselves are showing, the people that we are loving. And we have it all backwards, and that's not the kind of faith that will ever lead you into eternal life. That's not the kind of faith that can justify there is only one faith that can justify a guilty sinner. It's faith that trusts fully and finally and completely in the finished work of Christ, His righteousness alone, His atoning death alone. We must always have those things in the proper relationship. And so, the simple message this morning from Luke chapter 10, from this parable within its narrative context, is don't stop seeking to love God and to love your neighbor. But do stop trying to justify yourself in this way. Seek only the righteousness that comes by faith. And from that faith, the true love for God and neighbor that God desires will flow. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you count guilty sinners right. You justify us, that you declare us just by a free and gracious gift that we did not deserve. You count our faith to us as righteousness because of Christ. What wondrous love this is. When we were your enemies, we did not deserve this. We had our fists raised against you. And yet, because of your great love for us, you reconciled us to yourself through your Son. Lord, may we ever go forth trusting fully in what you've done for us. And seeing it, seeing his example of love, may we go forth also as people who imitate him and to love in this way, loving those who we would otherwise judge as undeserving, 
loving those who we would otherwise judge as not our neighbor, but rather seeking not to define who our neighbor is, but seeking to be a neighbor to all, demonstrating that kind of sacrificial love that we've seen portrayed before our eyes today by your grace as you work in our life to produce this kind of love. This we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.